Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Second Chronicles, chapter 35. Today we study tonight verses 20 to 27. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, Second Chronicles 35, beginning at verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet him. But he sent envoys to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I am not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry, cease opposing God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archer shot Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. And he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah, and all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his good deeds, according to what is written in the law of the Lord and his acts, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the wisdom that we gain through our study of the Old Testament. And Father, there is no higher wit- wisdom that we, than that we would repent of ourselves and our ability, any righteousness of our own, but that we would look to the Son whom you sent, and he, in him that we would find the whole of our salvation. We pray that you would work in us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Like Judah's King Josiah, England's Edward VI came to the throne at a young age. Josiah was eight years old when he... Uh, took his crown. Uh, Edward VI was nine. Moreover, like Josiah, young Edward came to the power at a time of great tumult and danger, in his case due to the long and controversial reign of his father, Henry VIII, in the 16th century. Now, Edward VI is favorably compared to the last godly king of Judah because he also was a fervent believer who was strongly committed to God's word. In fact, when Henry VIII died, many of the Roman Catholic courtiers and nobles were determined to bring England back under the papal yoke. Henry, you may know, had formed the Church of England for various reasons, and he was no longer under Roman Catholicism. There had been a biblical reformation taking place at that time. And so Edward, together with his godfather, Thomas Cranmer, who was the uh, chief prelate in England, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and they determined that they would use this opportunity for biblical reform. Edward VI wanted his subjects to know that justification is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. He wanted God's word freely available to all his people. 
So he supported godly preachers who taught the Bible faithfully. His ascension to England's throne, therefore, was greeted with enthusiasm throughout the world of the the 16th century Reformation. He was dubbed the English Josiah. Now, sadly, Edward VI was similar to Josiah in one final manner, namely that his sudden and seemingly premature death brought his nation to a spiritual crisis that threatened disaster. Now, Josiah of Judah reigned for 31 years. Edward VI reigned for only six years. And Edward's dying prayer asked the Lord, I quote, to defend this realm from papistry and maintain thy true religion. And yet in the providence of God, the legitimate successor to Edward was not his Protestant cousin, Lady Jane Grey, to whom he and his supporters tried vainly to grant the succession, but it actually, quite legitimately, was Mary Tudor. So the new Queen Mary, daughter of the fervently Roman Catholic Catherine of Aragon, would use all of her resources and power to bring England back under the papal yoke. She began savagely persecuting the Reformed preachers particularly. Josiah of Judah was followed by his sons, the names of which go down among the worst in the history of the Old Testament. We're we're meeting them in the book of Jeremiah. Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. Well, in this case, she got the nickname Bloody Mary because of her violent assault, burning to death the servants of the Lord. Josiah's untimely death led to those ungodly reigns, the result of which was the end of Jerusalem in the Old Covenant. Well, it's no wonder that when Josiah died in battle, ending that final godly hope for Old Covenant Israel, the chronicler would write about the lament for Josiah. Verse 25, all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. Well, the final account of Josiah's life fast forward 13 years from the rest of the chapter. Uh, Earlier in this chapter, uh, the chronicler celebrated the godly king's observance of the Passover, which had been neglected for generations. But here, at the very end, we see Josiah cast in a different form, a form that probably reflects the nature of the challenges he'd been dealing with, or at least thinking about, during the previous decade. Now, so far, we've seen Josiah preoccupied with the spiritual realm of God's people. He removed the idols, you remember. He assailed the high places. That's where false worship was taking place. He undertook a repair of the temple, and they discovered there the book of Deuteronomy, which had been lost, and he began reading Deuteronomy. He realized that they had placed themselves under God's curse, and he lamented for that. He he sent to the prophetess Holda for for, uh, uh, information about what to do. And then in this chapter, he showed his commitment for Judah to celebrate the biblical feast. And yet suddenly at the very end, he appears as a would-be warrior king. And he is eager, it seems, to take on the mightier kingdom of Egypt in battle. What can account for that martial transformation? Well, the most likely explanation observes that the previous years, this is the year 609 B.C., In the previous years, it's seen some of the most significant political military events of ancient history. 
for the past century or so, Judah had, had been trying to stave off the advances and the conquest of that vicious enemy, the Assyrian army in Nineveh. A terrible enemy who in 701 BC, you remember, under Hezekiah, had tried to conquer Jerusalem itself. But more recently, a new power had risen in the east in the form of Nabopolassar of Babylon and his more famous son, Nebuchadnezzar. In 612 BC, the Babylonians captured the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. The Assyrians retreated to Haran, and the Babylonians besieged and took that last bastion of Assyrian in 610 BC. Well, this event takes place in the year afterwards, when the remnants of the Assyrian might had gathered at Carchemish along the Euphrates River, from which they hoped to regroup and retake Haran. Now, it seems likely that Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, who appears in our passage, had originally thought that he would take advantage of this. He, too, was an enemy of Assyria. It's most likely that he moved his army up from Assyria, up through the area of Judah, uh, hoping that he would snatch up some of the territory that had fallen out of the Assyrian net. And yet he quickly realized he had a bigger problem on his hands. The the Babylonian tide was rising in an alarming manner, And, and so he changed his mind, and he marched his army north, to join up with the Assyrians to uh, fortify their strength in the hope of pushing back against Babylon. To that end, he was headed to Carchemish on the Euphrates. Now, it's not entirely clear why King Josiah decided that he would involve himself in these things, why he determined that he would not let Pharaoh Necho pass through. Now, I suppose there's the integrity of one's borders, and certainly Egypt had no, been no great friend. There, there had been, in recent years, there had been attempts to ally with Egypt against the Assyrians. Jeremiah, of course, had rebuked them for these things. They needed to turn to the Lord. And we're told that uh, Josephus, the uh, first century AD Jewish historian, he, he writes that Nico actually corresponded with Josiah, told him he was not messing with Judah, he was not trying to do anything to Judah or Jerusalem, and asking if he could have safe passage through. We don't know if that happened or not, but the chronicler tells us in verse 20, after all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet him. Now, all this refers to the religious forms of his earlier days. Now, this military-minded Josiah moved to intercept the Egyptian host. Now, whether or not Pharaoh Necho had previously sent envoys to Josiah, he did so now. And they had a message in verse 21. What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I am not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. That is, of course, Babylon. Here's the question. How should Josiah have responded? Well, biblical wisdom would suggest that he should stay out of this conflict between larger political military powers. We think of Proverbs 26, 17, which gives us good advice. It says, whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. You can pick up that imagery. You get someone walking your dog, their large dog through your neighborhood. This goes on at any hour of the day in my neighborhood. Or downtown Greenville, the doggiest town I have ever seen in my life. And you walk up to this dog you do not know and you grab it by the ear. Well, the, Solomon says you are very likely to get bitten. 
Well, like ancient Israel, the church today is not commanded by God to make its business the various conflicts that range in the world and in society from time to time. The church is an institution not of the secular realm, but it is an institution of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Christians are in both realms. If you're an American citizen, then you are both, uh, you have obligations to your country, your your civil authority more locally, and to a certain extent that the church does with normal affairs. But the church is set apart for the work in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We often today, we have uh, churches saying they're going to decide what their mission is. Uh, Some years ago, in a very profitable way, our elders had a retreat, and we were encouraged by the retreat speaker, a friend of mine, that we should write a mission statement. And I reflected at the time that when I was in the army, not once in all my career did higher headquarters call down and say, why don't you select your mission for today? You, almost, you never choose your own mission. Your mission is given to you by your higher authority. And so I would get battle plans down, defend this piece of terrain, attack that piece of terrain, go and work on your vehicles. The missions come to you. And so it is for the church. And you may know the church mission statement of our church is intentionally a working out of the great commission of Matthew 28, 18 to 20. We are reaching out, folding in, growing up to the glory of God in obedience to the great commission. Now, we do that because we do not believe that we have the right to just make up a mission of our own. Rather, Jesus has given the church the mission of the gospel. We're to be be making disciples of all nations. We're to be baptizing them. That's church church, uh, uh, membership. We're to be teaching them to observe all that I commanded. That's Christian education and discipleship. These are the things for which the church is called. We are not to intermeddle in civilian affairs. The, the, the Westminster Confession includes a very wise statement called the spirituality of the church. The spirituality of the church simply says that our mission is the mission of the gospel there are times, the confession mentions, sometimes the civil government, it may ask our advice. And of course, we would give that advice, particularly on moral, spiritual matters. There might be sins so grievous that happens today that the church cannot be silent about them. We certainly, as part of our evangelism, we will rebuke sin, as I did this morning. I mentioned civil government and great sins that are bound to be judged. But the natural affairs, and that would include things like wars, And conflicts of that nature are not the business of the Christian church. Let me give you a a very significant uh, example from our own uh, spiritual history. In May of 1861, the Presbyterian Church met in America, met for its General Assembly in New York City, and it was a very controversial time. Just a few weeks earlier, the, the forces in Charleston, South Carolina, had fired on Fort Sumter, and the Civil War was actually starting at that time. And A minister by the name of Gardner Spring from New York City, a very godly, conservative, evangelical minister, but it it was hard not to be carried away by events. He put forth what is known to history as the Gardner Spring Resolution. And this resolution required every minister in the Presbyterian Church throughout the nation to declare loyalty to the Union. That was the great cause. The southern states, you may know, argued that they were free to secede from the Union. The northern states argued that the southern states were not free to secede from the Union. A great war was starting. 
And this resolution came forth requiring all the ministers to choose sides to declare a strictly civil matter that even legal scholars argue about today. They were all to declare their loyalty to the Union. Well, you can imagine what happened. The entirety of the Southern delegation refused, and the, the Presbyterian Church of the Confederacy was begun that day. That was a baleful event at a very time when the nation was torn apart. How much better would it have been for the church to maintain its unity in the Lord Jesus Christ? One of the worst effects was prior to the Gardner Spring Resolution, there was already division in the Presbyterian Church, namely between what's called the old school and the new school. There was a theological division. There were those who were following the new humanism, and they were denying the doctrines of the Bible. And then there were those, the ones that we look to in our heritage, the old school who says, no, we're going to teach the Bible, the faith of our fathers. And they had already divided. There was a new, a new school Presbyterian Church, and there was an old school Presbyterian Church. Dare I say, if we must be divided, that's what we should be divided over, Christ and the gospel. But after the Gardner Spring Resolution, the division became geographical and political, and sadly, the Southern Church reunited over the theological divides in order to support the Confederacy. The Northern Church, the old school and the new school, put aside these secondary matters like, is the Bible true? Is Jesus Lord? Is justification by faith and by grace alone? Those secondary matters, and they, they joined on the primary matter of the union. And the result is a situation that we have experienced during our lifetimes that in both the Northern and the Southern churches, the leaven of unbelief corrupted both churches, both denominations, ultimately became what we would call liberal. Why? Because of this foolish intermeddling with strictly secular matters. It frankly was not Josiah's business who won at Carchemish. We're never told in the Old Testament prophets, never is a king of Judah strictly told to get involved in the greater imperial matters. Now, they, they fight wars, wars to, to defeat the ungodly around them, wars to defend themselves against people like Assyria. How much better when the church remember that its mission comes from its master, that we are under a king, that king is Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, Christians are members of the civil, civil society. Christians vote. Christians do get involved in, in many causes that are not spiritual. But the church, as the church, is to remain focused on the Great Commission. Well, how can we account for Josiah's behavior? Andrew Stewart suggests that he was suffering the strain from single-handedly, it wasn't actually single-handed, but what seems to be his single-handed attempts to bring reformation to a very reluctant and ungodly nation. Josiah had helpers, but it is true that he was, it was an uphill fight for year after year. He was the one initiating, with God's help, a the removal of the idols, the reinstitution of the Passover. He bore the burden by God's grace, and it may be that the strain was wearing on him. Uh, Stewart compares Josiah to a medical doctor who works impossibly long hours out of zeal for his, his profession and, and the stakes involved case by case. And he puts strain on himself and, and his family until finally, in a state of exhaustion, he makes a mistake that ends up losing a patient's life. That kind of thing happens today, and it may be that that kind of strain was telling on Josiah. 
Well, it's hard to know that, but we can know this. According to the text, we see no record of him doing the thing that he most of all needed to do. He needed to take consultation of the word of God. He had a big decision here. There were big events happening, and we are told at no place, and here is where silence is deafening in the Bible, that he sought to know what was the wisdom and what was the will of the true and living God. Uh, When he discovered the book of Deuteronomy and he opened the book and he tore his clothes that Judah was under judgment, he immediately sent a message to Huldah the prophetess right around the corner. And so he knew where the prophets were. He had the prophet Jeremiah in and around the temple during this time. There were prophets available. There's not the slightest doubt. Had he gone to Jeremiah or Huldah and said, "I, I need the counsel of the Lord. What would the Lord have me to do? The record of scripture shows that he would have gotten an answer. It would not likely have been the course of action that he took. But Josiah acted like so many Christians today who make poor choices when it comes to child raising or dating, school choices, occupations, where they will live, who they will marry. They make poor choices because they do not devote themselves to a thorough study of biblical principles. The Bible will not tell you the name of the girl or the boy you should marry. It will tell you much about what the priorities are and the the attributes that should be seen in a suitable godly spouse. So it will be for many other choices I like to say I I always can tell the difference between two types of church members who've gone through a bad decision. Those who first consult their pastor, ask for biblical wisdom and prayer, and then make the decision. To be honest, that usually goes pretty well. And those who do not consult their pastor but come to him after the calamity has struck and ask him to pray for God's help. There's no point in berating them for it, but you wish they had sought biblical counsel, particularly when the decision they took was manifestly foolish. It involved a priority of of worldly thinking over godly thinking. A humble consultation with the Lord would have given Josiah the wisdom he needed. Now, curiously, since he did not consult God's word, the text says that Pharaoh Necho offered to provide it for him. It's a very interesting passage, verse 21. Here's what Necho says, God has commanded me to hurry. God has, he means the God, has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God, Josiah, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Now, how are we to understand this claim by a pagan ruler that God was giving him revelation? That God had commanded him to advance his army and had also sent a message to be given to the king of the covenant people of Judah. Well, I think the best way to take it in a case like this is pretty much at face value. And the problem is not that Nico said that he had the word of the Lord, it's that the chronicler seems to indicate that he had the word of the Lord. He did not listen, verse 22, to the words of Nico from the mouth of God. That's the word of the scripture. And so Nico claims, apparently supported by the Bible, that he had a message from God. Now that raises many questions, most of which I cannot answer. How did it happen? I do not know. Maybe a prophet went to him. Maybe he saw a vision, Josiah, Josephus records a very interesting event in what he claims from the life of, of Alexander the Great. A couple of centuries later, the great Macedonian conqueror had brought his army into the area of Judea, Judah. 
He was besieging the city of Tyre, and Josephus says that at one point, Alexander took a delegation of his top soldiers, Parmenian and Black Cleitus and all those famous officials of his, and they went to Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, the high priest of Judah, claiming a revelation from God, had the priests and the people dressed in white and the priests in their priestly garment open the gate to Jerusalem and go out to meet Alexander the Great. Now, the Bible doesn't teach this, but Josephus says this is what happened. And according to this story, when they met... To everyone's surprise, Alexander the Great bowed on bowed to the ground before the high priest of Judah, and then he claimed it was this man who came to me in a dream and commanded me to conquer the Persian Empire. Now, I, again, this is a record from secular history, but these kind it may be true, it may not be true. In this case, Pharaoh Necho is said to have had the word from the Lord. When you turn a couple of pages in your Bible to Ezra chapter 1, you will find out that after the Babylonian exile had run its 70 years, that God stirred up Cyrus the Great, the, the Persian ruler, and, and suddenly Cyrus on his throne in Persepolis comes up with the idea that right on the 70-year schedule, the people of God are to be restored to Jerusalem together with their sacred vessels. It's certainly a suggestion that God was behind it. I don't know else how to take this than more or less at face value. At the very least, Nico's claim should have gotten Josiah's attention. Again, this should have prompted him maybe to go to Jeremiah, who is right in town, and ask him, what do you make of Pharaoh Nico's claims? You would seem to have insight into these things. And Martin Selman says, or he might have employed some sanctified common sense. Well, how many of us would avert significant errors if we only took time to consider the word of God? We're, Romans 12.2 says that we're to be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind, and then we will be given discernment. We will know how to discern between right and wrong. We are to be students of God's word. It will make us wise in the matters of life and salvation. Well, history records that Josiah, refusing to accept Necho's uh, emissary, moved his army out from Judah, and he placed his army alongside the main coastal road, barring the way to Carchemish. And a battle was fought on a small rise that today goes by the name Tel Megiddo. Uh, the place was a bottleneck between the Mount Carmel foothills, so it seemed to be a good defensive position whereby he could deny passage to the Egyptian army through the land of Judah en route to the Assyrian forces. And there in 609 BC, the Battle of Megiddo was fought. The result was a resounding Egyptian victory. Necho was able, he more or less brushed them aside. He advanced towards Carchemish, where predictably his army was destroyed, together with the Assyrian remnant by the mighty Babylonians. One result of this, though, was because of the Battle of Megiddo, the people of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, became for a time a vassal state of Egypt, and that'll play out in the, the final chapter of Second Chronicles. Well, the chronicler's interest is with Josiah, who dies in this battle. And he points out Josiah's conduct, the events dealing with Josiah, in four points, four details that are given. 
The first detail is that he disguised himself in this battle. Verse 23, he did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. That is a very curious thing for an upright man of God to do. It's very, it's hard to justify what would be the purpose. You think a king would, if he's going to order his army out, would stand boldly in faith at their head. Josiah sat in his chariot disguising himself. Uh, Secondly, he was shot by a random arrow. Thirdly, he was taken and wounded in a chariot and raced off to Jerusalem. And third, he either died there or along the way. Now, let me say that if you are reading your Bible, you're thinking, it seems like somewhere I've heard that story before. And you have. You heard it in 2 Chronicles 18, in the battle of Ramoth-Gilead, in which the Jehoshaphat, that great king of Judah, foolishly allied himself with wicked king Ahab, who followed exactly the procedure Josiah showed at the battle of Megiddo, and exactly what happened to Ahab now happens exactly to Josiah. One has to wonder, Josiah, did you not have the book of Kings? The answer may be no. Chronicles is written later, Kings is finally compiled in Babylon that we're pretty confident about that. In any case, his judgment was so clouded that he imitates the conduct of one of the most heinous enemies of God in the entire, in fact, one of the most ridiculously foolish men in the entire Old Testament. He goes into battle as a new King Ahab. Well, what are we to make of this sad presentation? You have to figure it hurt the chronicler to write the truth of this word, lover of Josiah though he was. What are we to make of this end of the godly life of King Josiah at the Battle of Megiddo? Well, first, we are reminded, as it is said, that the best of men are men at best. Josiah was a sinner, and his death reminds us, Andrew Stewart puts it this way, that good men can fall, and godly men can forfeit through folly some of the blessings that otherwise would have been theirs. That's true. We look at Josiah, what a great man, but a man he was. He was a sinner. He was not ultimately able to manage every scenario. And so we're reminded of that by his foolish defeat and conduct. Now, secondly, we're reminded that even godly men, we would say the same thing about godly women, of exemplary attainments, even they need to live carefully. You and I will never reach the place in life where we can afford loose living without thought to prayer and the consultation of the Bible. We cannot afford at any time in our lives to turn away from the, 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 the piety of prayer and the study of God's word. We need to live carefully at every stage of life. Because folly takes its toll. It is especially deadly for older Christians of great missionary heroes, famous pastors, long-serving ministry leaders. They, above all others, cannot afford to provide an entry into sin. Doesn't our generation tell that story? And we probably can pick names of of some of the most famous Christian leaders, some of them in the church, some of them outside the church, who were the most admired. And yet after they fell, we look back and this ruinous path of of exposure and self-indulgence and then shocking 
secretly hidden wickedness. And sooner or later, it is brought to light. One famous man whose books I used to quote, I really can't quote them anymore. Because because of his gross sins, I mean Ravi Zacharias, because of his shocking conduct, he can no longer be commended to the church. We will never reach the place in life where we can afford especially to give a foothold to sin, particularly since there is such a thing as spiritual warfare. There is a person such as Satan. He does want to bring down those who were effectively used by God. We cannot afford to indulge in folly and certainly not in the ways of sin. And of course, the chronicler knows an awful lot about this. How many of the godly kings, there's many God, one of the fun things, one of the reasons I wanted to preach chronicles, I wanted you to know who Asa was. I wanted you to know who, you know, I love him, Jehoshaphat was, Josiah. Christian people need to know who they are. And many of them ended poorly. Remember Asa, he became proud and he he provoked the Lord after he won a victory by God's grace alone. Hezekiah ends very badly at the end of his life. And of course you go backwards from Chronicles into 1 Chronicles and then 2 Samuel. Maybe the greatest example in the Old Testament is King David. And King David is such a warning to men, but not just men. King David in 2 Chronicles, uh, 2 Samuel 12, he falls prey. He commits the great sin of adultery with Bathsheba. The Bible, I think, takes a pretty uh, 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 merciful view of Bathsheba, but not of David. He, in his pride and arrogance, he arranges the murder of her husband. And you go, how is it? How did it happen that a king David, the David, would do this? The answer was it happened very quickly. When you go back and you read the, the account in Samuel, 2 Samuel, it's just a, it's a succession of quick verses. He looked, he saw, he summoned, he took, it was done. And then he didn't repent. And then he plunges, David plunged. And the truth is, while God forgave him and there was some restoration, his kingdom never recovered. David will spend decades of his life and his, the kingdom of Israel is, is, is scarred their entire future because, well, the effect on his sons, the brood of vipers, Amnon and Absalom and Adonijah. And uh, David ends up, the, the, the death accounts of David are, are pitiful and sad. What seems to be a decrepit old man who never fully, Psalm 51 tells us, the Lord had mercy, he restored his spirit. But certainly in terms of his labors and his legacy, he crippled it by indulgence of sin. Oh, my friends, we cannot afford folly. We really cannot afford indulgence in sin. Church history, particularly recent church history, tells a similar tale. Let me say this. It is good to begin well in the faith. Josiah did that. Many of these people did, and and he accomplished many godly deeds. Let me encourage the young Begin well. Show zeal for the Lord. Why should you live a life for merely fleeting things? Oh, there's nothing wrong with worldly attainments, but you should have zeal to serve the Lord. And if you trust the Lord and you begin well in the faith, then you may, by God's grace, accomplish meaningful things for eternity. Beginning well in the faith is a great thing. But it is ending well in the faith that enables a Christian to leave a true legacy. 
It is ending. It's how you, not how you begin your pastorate, but how you end your pastorate. It's not how you begin your family, but how you pass on to the next family that will determine your legacy. No wonder Paul exhorted young Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's one of the lessons of Josiah. Thirdly, we have to observe in the events of the Battle of Megiddo, the, the, the hidden providence of God. We go back to King Edward VI, the England's Josiah, and what a calamity it was when he, he, one day he took a cough. Young Josiah, they were relying on him. And the, oh, the king is coughing, what does it mean? Well, within a few weeks, it meant that he was dead and Bloody Mary was coming on the throne. And, and what was happening? Well, God was doing his providential work even the persecutions that followed the days of, of King Edward VI were used by the Lord to solidify the commitment of England to the gospel. You think of the heroic stories of, 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 uh, of Latimer and Ridley. If you go to Oxford with our church plant, you'll go to Broad Street. And I'm sure our team that was recently there saw that little cross on the road. And, and if you were like me, you stood there in, in awed silence to think of Latimer and Ridley burning while singing psalms because of the gospel for which they were being persecuted. God used the death of Edward VI according to his providence. Yes, it involved the suffering of his people, but it saved thousands. In this case, the Lord is fulfilling the prophecy spoken of Josiah by the prophetess Huldah. Remember just in chapter 34, he had a tender heart. And because he lamented sin, he was tender-hearted before the Lord, the Lord said, Behold, I will gather you to your fathers. You shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I bring upon this place and its inhabitants. Now you say it doesn't seem like he went to his grave in peace. Well, actually he did. What it means was he did not suffer the judgment that would come that we've been studying in the book of Jeremiah that we'll see in our final chapter of Second Chronicles. The Lord had mercy on Josiah and by these providential means he's fully responsible for his foolishness. But the Lord was departing him from this life before the day of judgment came. Well, like King Ahab, whom he imitated so foolishly, Josiah died either in or on the way to Jerusalem. And verse 24 says he was buried in the tombs of his father. Uh, if you remember the way Chronicles, Chronicles thinks, that's an epitaph that he was a worthy heir of the house and line of David. He dies a believer uh, in, in the covenant faith. And the chronicler is going to focus, rather, on the response of that wicked generation because even they and we know by the way we know from Jeremiah that while Josiah is kings and chronicles tells us all that he did Jeremiah tells us of the spiritual rot underneath it it was a wicked people that was not following him uh, in true spirit and yet the chronicler tells of their mourning verse 24 to 6 all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah and all the singing men and the singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. Andrew Hill comments that the shockwave of Josiah's death sent tremors through Judah from which this nation never recovers. Not only do his religious reforms die with him, 
By the way, there's a legacy. We should be preserving the work that the Lord's given us. He did not do so. But the kingdom of Judah itself would die in the Babylonian onslaught two decades later. Well, how are we to make sense of this? Well, first of all, Josiah's greatness and the value of his good deeds was recognized. We read at the end, now the rest of the acts of Josiah, verses 26 and 7, and his good deeds according to what is written in the law of the Lord and his acts first and last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And so there was a record made of his good deeds. It's some of the source material, no doubt, for the chronicler. But you know what the problem was? The people appreciated him. The people respected him. The people admired him. The people lamented him. But it seems never have occurred to them to follow the example of his faith and life. We've had a vivid display of that in the recent death of Queen Elizabeth of England, much admired after her the longest reign of all the English monarchs. And, and I think it's fair to say that Elizabeth was greatly admired by virtually everyone because of her dignity, her sense of duty. I have friends who have known her personally who assure me that she was a most fervent Christian, even a reformed Christian. And the nation, the, the outpour, at one point... The, the, this is not a car line, this is a foot line. The line to pay respects to her was five miles long. But maybe I've missed them. I have not seen the calls for England to take up the virtues of the late Queen Elizabeth, for England to embrace the faith that she privately, at least, espoused. No, there's a recognition of her, but there is not a following of her example. So it was for ancient Judah. And the people mourned. Why did they mourn? Because they were relying on Josiah's faith. They were relying on his relationship with the Lord to save them. But my friends, we cannot be saved by the faith and godliness of other people. Young people here, do not rely on the faith of your mother and your father. Be grateful for the faith of your mother and father. But the faith of your parents will not save you. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. The faith of your pastor will not save you. The faith of godly political leaders will not save the city. Hebrews thirteen seven says, Remember your leaders. There's a good word. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. There's no one who should be completely imitated. Everyone you know, if you know them well enough, like Josiah, you go, uh, that part I'm not going to imitate. But the faith of the godly, that should be imitated in our faith. Now, thirdly, we're told of the lament of the prophet Jeremiah. We've spent a lot of time with Jeremiah And I think that we should appreciate, here were more tears. It was a terrible blow for the prophet. Interestingly, most of what we're studying now in Jeremiah, most of the book of Jeremiah, is actually written in the years after the departure of Josiah. And it was tears and a blow to him. He no doubt loved King Josiah. He gives an attestation of Josiah's faith. By the way, if you say, where in the Bible is Jeremiah's lament For uh, Josiah, you will not find it. It is not recorded in the scripture. There's many things that were written, even by biblical figures that are not recorded uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But what a wonderful thing it was for Josiah to have a, a, a lament 
spoken for his life and godliness by a true prophet of the Lord. Wouldn't it be wonderful for us to be lamented by the godly? Well, of course, as we read this morning in our scripture reading, there's something better than that. Because when our lives are over, we will stand at the final judgment and every one of us should look forward after a life of imperfect but sincere service to Christ that our Lord will give the accolade we desire. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, the sad ending of Josiah's life and reign, together with the mournful results of his death, let me conclude by saying all of this serves to remind us that even the greatest of the Old Testament heroes chiefly accomplished their work by pointing us forward to the true hero, the true savior, the true king, the only one we can fully rely on, the Lord Jesus Christ. And John 13 says of Jesus that having loved his own, he, his people, he loved them to the very end. Hebrews 7, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, says that unlike all the other heroes, Jesus continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7, 24 to 25. There is the one we trust with all our hearts. And most notably, we should appreciate the difference between the impact of the death of Jesus versus the death of Josiah. Josiah's death was a spiritual disaster for the people who trusted in him. But my friends, the death of Jesus Christ is a spiritual triumph for those who believe in him. And that is because he rose again from the dead. He confirmed the atoning value of his death by the resurrection life. Well, let me conclude by thinking back to Luke 24, that great scene after Jesus had died and there was a lament in the heart of some of his disciples, maybe not unlike the mourning for the followers of Josiah. These are the Emmaus Road disciples. And the resurrected Lord, he was disguising himself on that occasion, not out of cowardice, out of ministry needs. He asked them, what were they so bothered about? And they said, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened these last three days? And then they said that they were speaking concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. And then with their, here's their lament. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Oh, so much like the death of Josiah. It wasn't Jesus' folly. It was the malice of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus said, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe what the prophets have all spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then we're told that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, Luke 24, 25 to 27. Well, my friends, the hope of God's people, according to his word, is Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the grave, securing for us justification and eternal life. It would have been a great privilege to serve Josiah, but in this case, serving Josiah led to failure. But if you will trust and serve Jesus Christ, 
according to God's word, you will never fail. Begin your life serving Jesus and you will accomplish things of value and maybe people will remember them with thanksgiving when your time to leave has come. But conclude your life serving Jesus and you will pass on a legacy in the lives of others and there will be treasure in heaven that no earthly trouble can ever take away. Josiah's death sadly signaled the judgment and death of his nation. Jesus' death for us signaled the end of all judgment for our sin. It it was God's opening to the way of eternal life. Believe in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Father in heaven, we thank you for the remarkable wisdom and testimony, even the interesting nature of the Holy Scriptures. And we pray, Father, that we would learn the lesson of Josiah's life. We thank you that we would as Hebrews said, that we would imitate his life and faith, but not his folly. But Father, help us to realize that we need a greater Savior, a greater Messiah, a greater King, and you have given him in Jesus Christ. Would you enable us that we will resolve, that we will follow and serve him because he never fails. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.